0: Uh, As she just said, my name is Chris Misson. I teach here at Pacific Bay Christian School, (laughs) uh, which is going to take me the rest of my life to remember. (laughs) Um, And I worship and serve at Seabue Baptist in the back of the valley, and I'm honored to be filling in for Pastor Rob today. He's uh, away at the Pillar Conference. So let me just pray for us, and then we're going to jump into it. Lord, thank you so much for your abundant grace to us, and we thank you for your word, and we ask that you'd feed us with it. Uh, help us to be eager and, and humble uh, as we hear. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. All right, so today we're going to look at a passage from the book of Titus, which is a really short letter. I'm going to take a while to get situated here. A really short letter written by Paul to a, a young pastor in Crete, and the idea was to encourage and equip him for gospel teaching and gospel living. And when you read Titus, you encounter uh, two ideas that are repeated several times, The first is the idea of sound doctrine. You actually hear it four times in 41 verses, and so it's pretty frequent. Uh, And then the other is the idea of good works. And good works you hear five times in the same amount of space in 41 verses. Uh, And we're going to focus firstly on this idea of sound doctrine before we get to our passage. Uh, The word doctrine just means a belief or a set of beliefs, it's like a, a group's teaching. But the Greek word translated sound means healthy or health giving like having a sound mind or a sound body. So when you put them together, the idea of sound doctrine is healthy teaching. It's teaching that leads to health. And in the Christian understanding, doctrine is not just a bunch of propositions we assent to. It's actually this whole world narrative for understanding God and ourselves and the world, for understanding things as they actually are. And we're invited into this so that we don't live by falsehood or don't live by delusion, but rather we live in with most deeply true about who God is and who we are. And Paul tells Titus, Titus 2, we need to teach what accords with this healthy doctrine, with this sound doctrine. And and Paul wants Titus to cling to this. And the the gospel, which is at the center of sound doctrine, when rightfully cherished, I bet you've experienced this, it results in health and strength. When rightly believed and cherished, the gospel results in health and strength for individuals, families, and church communities. Uh, There's life and health kind of emanating out. John Calvin says sound means wholesome. He says it it, it describes a teaching that actually feeds your soul. Um, Now elsewhere in Titus, Paul actually takes this sound doctrine and he contrasts it with with bad doctrine. And he says the bad doctrine, it has no value. It doesn't lead to any life. What it does is it leads to quarreling and division. It has no yield. Uh, And in 2 Timothy, he takes this and goes even further and he contrasts healthy teaching with Bad teaching, and he says the bad teaching acts more like a spreading poison. Uh, he actually compares it to gangrene, which I don't know a lot about gangrene, but it's cell destroying, right? It just eats a biologist here It eats away, right? It's a disease or condition that devours, and and just on analogy, you've probably felt this in small ways, right? When you've had a wrong belief, or maybe a wrong impulse or passion, and it just kind of, or maybe even a misunderstanding, and it kind of seeps into your heart and then just wrecks house. Um, that's the t- sort of thing that Paul is warning Titus and Timothy about, is don't let that false stuff seep in and wreck house. But instead, let this good stuff in. Because the good doctrine, belief, and cherish will work the other way around. It won't poison you, it'll lead to life and health. Because the, the true story of the world that we get in the scriptures is kind of the perfect tonic. It heals the gangrene of all those false narratives and disordered inclinations that we kind of live into. Uh, the good food of the gospel is the sort that can make even the most sickly, including us, strong again. Uh, and so today what we're going to do is we're going to look at just a summary passage, uh, a summary statement that Paul has in Titus of this healthy doctrine. And he, he wants Titus to cling to it and to teach it so that his church can be encouraged in their faith, but also so that his church can be encouraged to do the good work of the gospel in a broken world. And as we look at how Paul taught that Titus, we're saying, okay, this is still God's word for us. We're still the church here, and so we want to hear it. So let's read this passage. This is Titus 2, 11 through 14. I think it's going to be up there. This is brilliant. Really, I'm not used to any of this. <laughs> and the freedom and everything. So give me a second, yeah. I'm going to look this way. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Amen? Amen. We're going to meditate on this now, just phrase by phrase, all the way to the end. Um, The first phrase is, for the grace of God has appeared. And grace refers to God's gift of mercy and acceptance. It's resurrection for those long dead. It's, it's freedom to those enslaved. And it's a gift from the outside. It's not something we drum up. It's something that's given to us. God's grace is always him reaching out to you, him placing his love upon you. So even while you did posture as enemies, or whatever, uh, however bad you've been, or however foolish you've been, the grace of God can still reach out to you, can appear to you. But it does sound strange to say appear to you, right? Um, and I think it's because this, this phrase appeared is referring Jesus to the first coming of Jesus. Um, Jesus is the embodiment of God's grace. And he appeared. He entered the brokenness of this world to show us the love of the Father. He's appearing. Now, if you read the Bible, you see that God's grace has been appearing all along. But we get a fuller manifestation when Christ comes. In the incarnation, we get a fuller revelation. Everything that was attested to before, we get to see it made known in Christ's life, death, and resurrection. It's like, imagine the rising sun kind of coming over the the hillside or the mountains, and uh, things that were once shadowy before, we're starting to see more clearly. And that's kind of like the incarnation of Christ. And that light in that metaphor is the light of men. It's Jesus Christ himself. And it says that the grace of God has appeared, and it says next that it's bringing salvation. Have you heard that word a lot, salvation? If you've been in a church for more than a week, you've heard it many times, right? We say it a lot. We use this word a ton. And essentially, it means rescue. Salvation means rescue or sometimes even healing. And it's used in the Old Testament to talk about rescuing someone from oppression or rescuing someone from an enemy or even sometimes from a sickness. When the Israelites are delivered from a violent slavery in Egypt, Moses coins this as the salvation of God. First time it's used, Exodus 15, the salvation of God. And from that point on, the Exodus story becomes kind of the prime illustration of what it means to be saved, uh, foreshadowing the rescue that's offered to us in Christ. Um, it's probably wise to pause here. And what does, what does Christ rescue us from? Um, and the simple answer is everything that presents a danger to your soul and heart. He offers you salvation from everything that presents a danger to your soul and heart. I'm going to list five things. Uh, one, from wrath, from God's rightful justice against rebellion, Christ takes your place as your representative man. Two, the devil. Christians believe in, that there's an enemy of our soul, and without Christ, it says the scripture says you're under his sway. And there, But when you look at the gospel, he's dealt a mortal wound at the cross that he's not going to recover from. The Christian gospel Christ's gospel, the grace of God offered to us, also offers us salvation from idols, from, those, uh, from the clutches of false gods that tend to crush their worshipers that we so often get tangled up in. Salvation off- is also rescue from sin, right? From the penalty of it, from the guilt of it, and then even the addiction patterns of it, Christ offers us rescue. And then the, the big one, um, Christ offers us rescue from the greatest enemy of all, which is death, Um, in every way, spiritual death, physical death, eternal death. uh, Christ offers you ultimate rescue from these things, and he foreshadows that with his resurrection, showing that he has power over that and invites us to participate in that here and to come. So in God's grace, there's rescue from every force that is against you, uh, including death, and it's appeared to us in Christ. And now this word salvation in the Bible, it's used a few different uh, in a few different ways. Uh, usually we use it in one way, but there is kind of a past, present, and future sense of salvation. Um, usually we, we just talk about the past, like big S salvation, forgiven and freed from our sins once and for all, by grace through faith, once and for all. We've been saved in Christ, and that is absolutely true. But there's another sense of an ongoing rescue, uh, an ongoing repairing of our hearts, and kind of a... Uh, a rescuing of the residual effects. Oh, was that me? Sorry. The residual effects of of sin's former dominion. Sin once had dominion of your heart, and God is rescuing you from that in the present. And then there's also the future. The day when all evil, both the evil inside of you and the evil outside of you, is going to finally be eradicated when Christ returns in glory, when he makes things as they ought to be. And uh, the traditional way to remember this for for note-takers is You have been saved from the penalty. I'm going to go all the way. You have been saved from the penalty of sin. You have been. You are being saved from the power of sin. And you will be saved from the presence of sin. Uh, And this is God's rescue, God's work of salvation for you. uh, From the penalty, from the power, and from the presence. And it says that this is for all people. And that doesn't mean necessarily every single person, but rather that it's available to every type of person. Every ethnic group. Every economic class, every intelligence, every quirk, every addict, every sort of work, every possible moral background, even you and even me and even them, the them that we don't like very much, it's for all people. Uh, and we're supposed to learn from this, uh, how we welcome one another. It's for every tribe, tongue, and nation. And it says in the next verse that it's training us, God's grace is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. This is the healthy teaching of God's grace, it teaches us to, it trains us away from what's harmful and towards what's restorative. Um, And the word train is uh, to bring up or educate or discipline. And it's usually of a child being taught, you know, a young kid being taught. Um, And God's grace, if we rightly submit to it, it teaches us like little children, doesn't it? Uh, It teaches us how to rightly walk and how to rightly speak and how to rightly know and how to rightly love. And in Christ, we're newborn. We're born again. And we often need to be taught to walk all over again. You know, not for our lust any longer, but rather for him. And not for our selfish habits anymore, but for others. And so we're raised to walk in newness of life. And see, we're we're rescued as slaves. We're rescued from that. But then we're not left to continue living as slaves. We're retaught to live as free sons and daughters. God's grace trains us unto that. And that's a radical reconfiguration of the way our hearts are used to working. We're used to uh, kind of finding our identity on our old enslavements rather than in our freedom. But God's grace trains us away from that. The school of God's grace, which we're going to be talking about today, which we already are talking about today, it educates heart, mind, body, soul to delight in things that are good. Have you experienced that? Um, like justice or mercy or humility or kindness, or temperance, or forgiveness—it trains us unto those things. It to, de- to declare against anything that's destructive, like hedonism or selfishness or violence, and instead to lean into these things that are good and to delight in them. And I like this word "train" because "train" seems to—you know—if you're training for like a sporting match or whatever, it's a process. It doesn't happen all at once. Um, it's a—it connotes a process over time. <clears throat> And in the gospel, in a moment, you're forgiven of all your sins, in one single moment. But the cleansing process of sanctification, that kind of retraining of your hearts to love and long for the right things, that takes time, doesn't it? Um, but that's where the good physician goes to work, but only to the patient who submitted himself to the table. Goes to work on our hearts, and it's a process because our sin sickness has deep roots, and our heart has great need. And so it's it's this process, and it says that in this process we're being taught to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Can anyone think of a time they've said renounce in the last 20 years? (laughs) I mean, that's that's not a word we use in our regular vocabulary. I I mean, I doubt it, you know, like, you know, I used to wear Nike, but I've renounced that, and now I'm Adidas. It would be unusual. Um, And so therefore we pause on it and say, oh, renounce, it means to formally declare one's abandonment of something. To declare against old loyalties and loves to absolutely declare against them, or rather, you know, declare against old slaveries. Because God's grace, when it's trusted and asked for and received and cherished, it teaches us in a continual way to declare against ungodliness, to declare against the old ways. Um, Ungodliness is anything that doesn't reflect or image God's goodness or anything that neglects God. Um, And it says it's training us away from that. The other thing it says we're being told to renounce is a pattern of worldly passions. Worldly refers really simply to just a system of values that are opposed to God. Uh, Passions is a little more complex. It's uh, any sort of inordinate or destructive desire. Uh, It's actually often translated lust, the same word. Um, So it's lust for bad things, but more often it's, it's actually a lust for good things in a bad way. That's more often the case. So, you have maybe a disordered desire for sex or beauty or money or career or power or admiration or status or pleasure or peace or even meaning. And some of those are really good things. But the way we desire this, this inordinate desire actually becomes destructive to us. And often, when we study these kind of worldly passions that we have, it reveals a religious impulse in all of us because we're. We're, it, releal, it reveals this impulse to seek God because we're seeking only what he can provide, but we're seeking it elsewhere. Um, it's like while our souls are really desiring um, God, we're actually self-destructingly seeking autonomy from him. Uh, kind of like Adam and Eve. They wanted wisdom and freedom, and where they do, they ran the other way. The only true source was to actually be found, find that in, in God himself, and yet they run the other way. And for us, it's living as if we didn't actually need salvation as if our soul's deepest desire wasn't really to worship and follow him. Um, So renounce, remember that, to declare against, um, to renounce those formal loyalties you once had to destructive patterns and passions, and that could take all sorts of different shapes. It could be religious indifference or some sort of vice or whatever it might be. Um, It says God's grace trains us away from these. Now, if this is true, and I believe it is, Then, what we need to do is take our worldly passions and expose them to the light of God's grace. And that's my encouragement to you. Um, You can either do it now or when you get home, is maybe to get alone and get a piece of paper and write out some of the worldly passions or sinful practices that need to be declared against in your heart, not in your neighbor's heart. You know, I haven't been preaching for very long, but I get this a lot. After the sermon says, you know what? That would have been perfect for my brother. (laughs) <laughs> you know, it's like, I'm, I've got a tape. I'm so happy to, I'm going to play it for my kids. You know, it, it's, it's never like just about me. It's like, I've figured out who that's good for. And that's fine because a lot of that comes out of love. But no, in your own heart, um, to write down a couple things that need to be declared against. Um, sometimes the small ones are the most permin- pernicious, you know, thinking like, oh, it's small. That's, that's fine. Or, well, I'm not as bad as that person or I'm not as bad as most people. Or you tell people, you know, that's that thing that I really struggle with. But you haven't actually really struggled with it in years. You just kind of give in over and over and over. Uh, You know, uh, confession, which is the act of being honest before God, uh, it works best when the sins are actually named. Um, And the first step is always recognizing what? I'm not right and I need help. And that that goes for any sort of confession. I'm not right and I need help. Um, And so on your paper, uh, oh, you guys are paperless here. (laughs) totally forgot um, at home or on your iPad or wherever or in your mind or in your heart, um, I'm going to ask you to maybe write down three destructive habits or patterns or practices or worldly passions that have plagued you for way too long. And you kind of know they're there, but you've kind of let them grow and, and ask God to show them to you. Uh, and maybe it's a form of pride uh, or maybe it's a resentment or a grudge that you've held for a long time. Um Or maybe you actually do hate someone and you've just never been able to call it that. That's what it really is, but you've never been able to call it that. You've dressed it up a little nicer. Uh, Or maybe you mistreat a loved one or a subtle hint of racism somewhere or thirst for power and control in all your relationships or adulterous desires. By the way, this is a list if you couldn't tell. Adulterous desires or maybe selfish or hedonistic pursuits and longings that you have in your heart that actually harm you and your loved ones. Uh, Or maybe their addiction cycles, whether that's food or substances or behaviors or idolatrous relationships with your work or idolatrous relationships with your wealth or it's maybe some fear that you actually nurse regularly. Uh, What worldly lusts need to be brought to the great physician? Um, What course in the School of Grace do we need to enroll in? Um, I need to enroll in lots. (laughs) Um, And hopefully with this list, you can spend a, a bunch of time Uh, in prayer and meditation, thinking, okay, how does the grace of God train me away from this? How does it train me to declare against this? How does it reveal the deep heart problems that are beneath these desires and patterns and redirect them to him? Because God's grace of the cross, it meets you where you are. And so it'll meet us in different places. For some, it's going to lift us up. For some, it's going to bring us down, right? For some, it's going to steady us. For some, it's going to make us uncomfortable. And these are all good things. For some, it's going to direct the wanderer. For some, it's going to get us lost off the bad track and back onto the right one. Um, God's grace shows you the very heart of God. And when you see the very heart of God, uh, it moves you away from those other things and towards him. And so uh, the encouragement, and we'll get back to the text shortly, I swear, that the encouragement is um, that in confession, you allow the forgiving and cleansing grace of God to kind of wash over you and and train your heart towards his goodness, uh, just step by step. Because you have to know that every appetite you have, it grows through indulgence, right? Have you experienced that? That your appetites grow through indulgence? And that counts even for the hidden emotional stuff, like resentment or fear or anger. Um, Indulgence is practice, and practice makes perfect, perfect, yeah. Uh, So what do we do? We get really good at resentment in our heart, and it's so hidden in our heart we don't even call it that, but we get really good at it. Or we get really good at selfishness really skilled, or really good at confusing love for possession and control. I mean, we become like professionals because we indulge and, 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 and practice it so much. But if you indulge in these worldly passions, they only grow stronger. And they're not satisfied so easily. They're going to eventually ask for your whole soul without you even knowing it. Um, and they have to be stopped. And God's grace, according to this text, it offers us rescue, forgiveness for what is past and freedom for what's to come. Because most of our prisons are kind of self-made, and God gives us every reason and every empowerment we need for release. So maybe you need to just pray and say, Lord, I've got the right things in my head, because often we have them here, right? I've got the right things in my head, but my loves and desires, they're all the way over there. So I I want change, and I want your way, but I also don't. So so please help me, right? Uh, An honest prayer. Lord, please, I repent. I declare against it. Help me. Show me the beauty of Christ. Reorder my life this way, please. Uh, That's how it starts. And there might be more to come, right? But it, it must start that way. So, again, when you get home, maybe just three things, um, three worldly passions that need to be replaced or redirected. And if you're bold enough, find someone to talk to about it, someone you trust. Uh, confess your sins once another and find healing for your soul. Um, wear the body of Christ, not just individuals. Um, let that person help bear your burden and minister to you. All right, back to the text. Um uh, Paul then shifts towards positive morality, saying that God's grace also trains you to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. In short, it trains us to live well before God and before man, Uh, and Paul gives three simple elements of this. The first is self-control. We know what that means, right? Uh, We know what it means, and we tend to avoid the subject because we're not so good at it. You know, we have a culture of mass consumerism and entertainment glut. And I think sometimes we imagine that not choosing the worst options kind of sets us in the clear. But maybe, I mean, just because you maybe have avoided, like, overindulgence in alcohol or ice cream doesn't mean that, you know, eating 19 bowls of ravioli in a sitting is okay. Like, you know, we, we'll, we'll get mixed up. Because our lack of control, it might manifest in ways that um, they don't seem so bad from the outside. But this sort of weakness doesn't stay in the, the tidy compartments we give it. This sort of weakness actually will eventually bleed over into more important areas, um, and it's just also the other way. Sometimes self-control in smaller areas b- helps strengthen that self-control part of you into the, the big things. Um, it's funny because self-control—I've noticed—I just have a bunch of nephews, uh, but it's one of the things we get really mad at kids for not having. You know, it's like, and then we go on respectably excusing ourselves. You know, it's like I'm allowed to lash out, but not you. Uh, you know, or like. Hey, don't talk in church. You need to pay attention. Or uh, you don't throw fits. You better control yourself You know, while we're really upset in traffic. Um, this sort of thing. Or don't be controlled by your emotions. Or don't spend all your days on your phone as we're just scrolling. It's like, no, this is work. You know, um, It's probably actually a good idea, by the way, if, if you would get mad at a kid or your kids for thinking some of the things you're thinking or doing some of the things you're doing, that should cause you to pause and kind of consider some of those things. Um and if you have no control of yourself, I mean, what do you have control over? Because you definitely don't have control over other people. And you definitely have, don't have control over the events of your life. They just A lot of them just happen. Uh, some of them good, some of them bad. Uh, the only control we often get is how we can respond to, and navigate those events and how we can respond to people. Um, and we often give this power away. And when we give it away, our abilities to control ourselves uh, kind of atrophies and you've probably felt that before, I know I definitely have, um, where you kind of just feel out of control, or you just keep doing the same thing over and over and over, and, and you can't seem to stop. Well, you're not alone in that. Um, we're all kind of kin in this, in, this, uh, in this deal. And if we don't have control, who might? I mean, who have we given it up to, right? Have we given it up to advertisers? or to our insecurities and anxieties, or to addictions, or to false gods, or to every possible solic- oh, get tongue tied. Every possible solicitation of every bodily desire you have? I mean, what have you given control to? Because those things that I just listed, they don't love you, and they don't care about you, and they'll just use you up. Um, but thanks be to God, like in this passage, right? Paul says the, the school of God's grace can rescue us away from this and train us to be self-controlled. And also upright. Next one. Keller says this is uh, not just private morality. Uh, the word is just. So there's a kind of a social uh, import in this. Uh, that it means that you are just in your dealings with others. That you are fair. That you're honest. That you're true. And you're good in every relationship. So friends, family, work, and so on. In every relationship. And it would also include humbly helping those that are in need maybe disadvantaging yourself to help someone else. It's you know protecting the weak or providing for the needy. or It's basically being upright is being well-ordered inside and out. It's that you live justly and rightly. And God says God's grace will train you to live like this. And the last element here is godly. Um, really simply, this just means reflecting his character and heart, right? Image-bearing. Um, and it likely always... Uh, sorry, likely always, it's not what I'm trying to say, likely also um, signifies being habitually pious um, in the duties that pertain to your soul. So you actually, like, your relationship with God is actually a prioritized part of your identity. I remember as a student, I would they would say, what's the most important thing in your life? And number one, God. And they'd say, how do you see that in your life? Oh, whoops. <laughs> you know, I'd like to say it on paper, but... The, the fact that I'm saying my identity is in God and it's supposed to be a prioritized part of who I am and uh, it's supposed to everything else is supposed to flow from that, that often wasn't the case. That was the case here, but not in my heart. Um, and being godly is actually having your prime identity in Christ and letting everything else then get sorted from there. Um, and it's then it says, in the present age. That means right here and now. Um there is much to come in Christ. In the gospel, That lots of stuff is promised that's yet to come, right? But this stuff, this transformative stuff, it says this can happen right here and right now. It says, in this present age, while we're waiting for the full rescue that's yet to come, which is the next verse, verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul already mentioned Christ's first appearing, and now he brings up the second. Uh, This is actually one of the few passages in the New Testament that has that past, present, and future sense of salvation kind of all working together. Um, Christians believe that Christ is going to come back in glory and that it's going to be a blessed and happy day for those who have longed for it. Um, This is a key part of that sound doctrine or healthy teaching that Paul is pushing. Uh, Tim Keller actually mentions, he says that the second coming is mentioned 300 times in the New Testament, something like 300 times, and almost always, it's in the context of trying to motivate people to live well right now. Almost always it's about giving hope and encouragement for right here and right now. Um, The second coming is something we're supposed to be longing for, and somehow that instructs us even now. I mean, this is the full dawning of the kingdom where everything that Christ started is finally brought to completion, where the new creation, which is inaugurated in his resurrection, comes to full bloom. Or how about all these other things? Victory over death or justification of the sinner, or the healing of diseases, or the presence of God and the Holy Spirit. All this stuff is going to come in fullness. Right now, we just experience foretaste. The Holy Spirit brings eternity into the present through faith. So we get foretastes of these things, and those foretastes are instructing us even now, as we long for what's yet to come. And as we follow Jesus, we actually get to be a part of this. There's actually a continuity between our work and the return to come. So in the way that we peacemake, we signal the shalom that's to come, right? Uh, in the way that we care for the sick, we point towards the healing that's to come. In the way that we comfort the afflicted, we anticipate the day when Christ himself wipes away every possible tear. Um, all of this we do right now, though, as we anticipate this coming rule. And this is a huge part of this uh, healthy teaching, this Christian sound doctrine. All right, final verse, verse 14. Who gave himself for us, I really like this line. It was in one of our songs too that he gave himself for us. This is the gospel centerpiece of this passage. Jesus takes our sins upon himself and overcomes death for us. Uh, Christ offers himself in our place out of love and mercy. And he did it in order to redeem us, which is Exodus language again. We got that with salvation and now here with redeem. To redeem is... to use the language of the Old Testament, to buy someone out of slavery. And it says Christ gave himself to buy us out of this slavery, to redeem us. And just as we saw before, the pattern was saved and then trained. Well, here we see it's redeemed and then it's going to be unto a process of being purified. It says in the next, that Christ gave himself for us to purify us, uh, to make us clean. Just as the unwashed body kind of contracts disease, so also if there's unattended filth in our heart, uh, it will lead to soul sickness. And Christ's love is not content to leave us in dangerous filth. He, he wants to purify us. Um, so his intent is not just securing a legal verdict, though that is part of it, but he wants to draw that verdict into reality. So the restoration of the soul is not just the removal of guilt, but then guidance unto true holiness, and that's what we're made for, which is a radical reconfiguration of the way we currently are. Um David Brainerd was this old-time missionary to uh, the Native Americans. Uh, I, I don't even know the dates, but a long time ago. I mean, he was friends with Jonathan Edwards. Um, he, he has a quote that I want to read here. It says, I never got away from Jesus. This is him speaking of his preaching to the Native Americans. He says, I never got away from Jesus and him crucified in my preaching. I found that once these people were gripped by the great evangelical meaning of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf, I did not have to give them any instructions about changing their behavior. He says, I never got away from Christ in my teaching. He says, I I found once they understood that, all this other stuff just kind of fell into place. Now, there's slight hyperbole there, right? I've read his journals. He does teach them. But the the point is dead on. Christ giving himself up for us is at the center of all of this. That's the centerpiece of the health-giving doctrine And if you really come to understand and trust and love him because of this, then some of this other stuff will naturally start falling into place. And the love of Christ is the only love that when you completely surrender to, it helps you love other things and other people more, not less. The only thing that if you give yourself fully to, it doesn't devour you. Um, It's the only affection that if you completely surrender to, it doesn't enslave you, but rather it quickens your other affections. It sets you more free. In his love for you and in his love, in our love for him, there's this process where we're purified in this, where it sets us more free. And we learn in this in these last couple of phrases here that this is also part of his work for the world. Not just the work for our individual hearts, but as he's doing this, he's calling a people that have work in this world. He's creating a people for his own possession. Where is that? Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Um, This phrase is taken from Exodus 19. Does anyone recognize that? Can you go to Exodus 19? It's incredible. Uh, This is um, God speaking to Moses on behalf uh, for the Israelites, and he says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Listen to the relational language there. I saved you and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's Exodus 19. Uh, Now, there's a technical word to note this, but look, God is saying, all the world is mine. All the peoples are mine, but I've chosen you, my people, for a special purpose. You are my treasured possession for a special purpose, to be a kingdom of priests. And in 1 Peter 2, the church gets this same designation. This same phrase from Exodus 19 is applied to the church where the church is called the treasure possession, the kingdom of priests. And again, three times in the book of Revelation, the same designation. And part of this healthy doctrine that we get in the scriptures is God is restoring what went wrong at the fall. And he's redeeming a people who are going to have a vocation to be a kingdom of priests unto the world. Adam and Eve were created to bear his image and advance his blessing to the whole world so also those who are part of the new creation are called to advance his blessing to the ends of the earth, to mediate his presence and blessing. Uh, This becomes the role of the church as a treasure possession, the role of the church as the special priesthood. And the special priesthood in this passage is characterized as being zealous for good works. We can go back to Titus chapter 2. Who are zealous for good works, final phrase. Um, that was the second main idea, by the way. Remember, the first main idea was sound doctrine, and the second is good works that we see just over and over and over in Titus and in Timothy. Uh, here's another word you probably haven't used in a long time. Zeal. Has anyone said that recently? I asked that question once another time, and someone raised their hand immediately, and I was so surprised. You know, like, I'm really zealous for the warriors these days. It's just not, it's not the way we speak. Uh, but it just means great energy or great enthusiasm. Uh, a synonym would be passion or devotion or eagerness. And so our question is, in Christ, are you eager to love your neighbor? Are you devoted to serving one another? Are you eager to die unto yourself? Do you have an appetite to grow in God's grace? Are you eager to lay aside your comfort and time for the good of others? Zeal to be generous, anxious to be good, zealous to forgive? Um, this is the, what's supposed to characterize us. And what are good works? Um, any sort of act of justice or mercy or care, or love, or helping with urgent need. There's about a million different ways you could live this out. A good work is doing good to someone else. Um, By the way, you're never saved by your good works, right? We know that. You are never saved by your doing of good things. That's false teaching. It's dangerous. But you are always saved unto doing good, rescued from that selfish prison you had before, and rescued to doing good to others. You're free to participate more fully in good things in the goodness of good things. And one of the best things is that you're freed from self, hopefully, to love and serve other people. And you see it later in Titus. I'll read these passages quickly. Uh, Paul says, I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable. Chapter 3, 14. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. I think too often we live with this default mindset as how much good can I get for myself? And that's kind of the, the, what sets the agenda of my heart. How much good can I get for myself out of this relationship or this career or, or, or about this life instead of how much good can I get for others? Uh, how much good can I get for my family and for my wife and for my brothers and sisters in need and for my coworkers? And, and honestly, that's actually the path to your highest good too, right? Because doing the selfish thing never really works, does it? Um, we're supposed to be zealous for doing good to one another. So the goal here spot, grace-bought, grace-trained peop, grace people that are eager and devoted to the good. It's a great vision for the people of God, isn't it? And it's all with, because he who gave himself up for us. Um, so what are we currently devoted to? Uh, where does our enthusiasm and zeal currently lie? Is it in luxury and ease or material goods? Um or maybe in really low forms of arts and entertainment that kind of coddle and divert the, the hurting heart instead of help direct it towards the good. Um, zeal is supposed to connote like a passion and desire. I wonder if, if our highest excitement is for like the next movie that's coming out or the next show or the next sporting match, what does that might maybe indicate about our hearts? Or if our, if our highest excitement is to see our enemies fall, that's my great passion, to see them fall. Uh, or to finally be told that I was right, or to have more power or more money than someone else, uh, or to have that one career advancement that's going to magically solve all my economic and emotional problems forever. Well, that will never happen, though, right? But you know what I mean? We we have a zeal for these things. I mean, what does that reveal about our hearts? I mean, does the phrase zealous for good describe our relationship with the ways of God, with living a holy life, or with reconciling warring factions, or learning how to be humble and loving and kind? Uh, with being part of the kingdom work in our lives and in our community, Uh, I think very often our relationship with the ways of God is not, how can I get more of this because I'm so hungry and thirsty for his righteousness? It's more like, hey, how close do you think I can get to that thing over there before we call it sin? You know what I mean? How close can I get before we call it sin? You know, how many drinks before it's really drunkenness? Or, you know, how much food before it's gluttony? Or how many days do I really need to pray uh, or how many days do I really need to read the scripture? Because I honestly, I mean, I, it doesn't say I have to pray every day, does it? I've got things going on. Or how much do I really need to be generous and kind? Because you know I've got a lot going on. You can't expect me to be that generous with my time and resources. How many times do I really need to forgive my brother? He's just going to do it again. Um, you know, it's hardly zeal if we're just aiming for like the barest minimum, right? If we're not actually t- pursuing true simplicity or true temperance or true love of neighbor or true intimacy with God. Instead, we say, how far can I get away from God and as close to this destructive thing and say, and still be okay? You know, I'm okay for heaven standing right here on the edge of the line, right? You know, that's sometimes our hearts. How far away can I get and how close to this other thing? Uh, You know, that's like going to the doctor and say, hey, doc, you know, how much poison do you think I can drink before it does some serious damage? Because it's really, really, really good. I love the taste. That's foolish, right? Right? I mean, it's absolutely, all the while, it's like acid just kind of burning inside. I mean, that's absolutely foolish. Uh, A Christian is someone who believes in Jesus, worships Jesus, and follows Jesus. And just saying in my head, I think I believe those things is is not enough. A Christian delights to believe, worship, and follow. Uh, And sometimes we just stop at kind of one without growing to the other, saying God is welcoming us and inviting us into these other things. And uh, the fact is, we learn to hunger and thirst for it more. We want to believe more. We want to worship more. We want to follow more. Um, and yet sometimes we find, maybe you found, I found it many times in my life that I, all of a sudden I lack zeal for things that are really good. And when I do look at my zeal, it's for empty things. Uh, and that's not what we're called unto, for our individual sake, but also for the sake of the world, as we represent Christ on earth here as the church. Uh, we're called to adorn his message not that we're making it more beautiful, we're showing its beauty by actually living it out, by actually overcoming evil with good and forgiving and reconciling. Um, we're we're going to draw close to the, the close here, but maybe you're here saying, you know, I agree with those things you're saying, and, and I think I once had this seal, but, you know, kind of hang in your head, it's kind of gone. Um, how can it be renewed? Uh, well, maybe we need some of that healthy food that we talked about at the beginning. Where Christ is the main course, we need to, I'm gonna give a list, seek Him, behold Him, love Him, cherish Him, pray to Him, follow Him, cling to Him. And these are all personal, relational things, right? It's not just, I need more information about Him, or I need to seek Him because I need to get, I wanna use Him to get these other things in my life. That's not gonna work. We need to seek Him, to learn to love Him, to cherish Him. And maybe we need to just start work your way through this passage with Christ appearing to you. Has that happened? Have you experienced the salvation of God? Because he's ready to save, so call upon him. And if you have, does, do you still have joy in it? If not, then ask him for it. Ask him to show it to you anew. Have you then been trained by his grace? Has the school of grace begun in your heart? And have, have you kept on showing up for class? Um, it's not just a school of facts. This is like deep heart change, hands-on heart training. And it's all joy, but we, maybe you've stopped going to class. You've stopped submitting to the master, Stop trusting him. Well, repent and return. He calls you unto that. And don't worry about the next thousand years of your life. Worry about today. Just start right there. Or maybe you need to declare against the folly of the world and hedonistic lust while on your paper at home. And then do so every day. It's rescue. Those lusts are empty and Christ is full. And you know that here, but we need to learn it here too, right? Those are empty and he is full. Uh, Have you taken steps towards self-control and just treatment of neighbor? Or to order your life in such a way that God is actually the center? Well, if you haven't, well, then take one. Start with just one and ask him for help. Have you considered that he gave his life to purify you, that he loves you and he wants to love you into a change that's good for you in this world? Um, Not, I know I ought to love him, but do I actually love him? Well, then ask, pray, seek, worship, knock. Every single thing I've said, have you noticed how it ends? Call to him, cry out to him, come to him. Come to his grace. Submit yourself to his grace. And the last thing, have you become devoted to doing good to one another? Well, if not, ask him how to do it. Ask him, how can I get free from myself and to do good to other people? Um, Show me what this looks like at work or in my home or in my church or with my plans for my life. Show me what they ought to be. Show me how I ought to use my wealth. I mean, sometimes we flip into like a spiritual apathy of sorts and it's simply because we're not actively loving other people. We're not actually following the foot-washing Jesus because the Jesus that we get, the picture that we're supposed to imitate is a guy who's on his knees washing other people's feet and he says, follow me. Well, start, right? Plan to start devoting yourself to the highest good of everyone around you. That's one way to say it. The other way is just plan to love people. Devote yourself to the highest good of everyone around you. Um, if you feel any guilt now, that's quite all right. <laughs> uh, it's okay. And I would actually encourage you to drink it all the way down. Take the cup of godly sorrow, right, the image from C.S. Lewis, and drink it all the way down, and you'll find that it's going to refresh and energize you anew. It's going to refresh and energize you anew to, to turn to him. Um Everything here involves coming back to him. So if you feel any guilt, that's fine. Just follow it to the Savior. Don't live in that guilt. Let it be godly sorrow that points you to the Savior. Uh, Because that's what he's inviting you into. That's this whole passage. The grace of God has appeared to invite you into this thing to be about his good work. He's not against you. He is for you. Ephesians 2, we're God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus, right? For good works which he's prepared in advance. Uh, And I I believe that this is healthy doctrine. And so it needs to be feasted upon regularly, uh, taken inside where it can nourish and change us. Uh, I'm just looking at the time. We're just about over, maybe just another minute here. Um, If we feed regularly on this gospel, it's going to help us fight against spiritual sloth. Have you ever experienced spiritual sloth? Yeah, I have. Um, Kind of this melancholy laziness that just doesn't even want to do anything. It's not even taking steps away, but it's not taking steps towards, it's just kind of sitting. Have you ever experienced that? A couple head nods, thanks. <laughs> I was like, uh oh, <laughs> I'm really being exposed here. Uh, it's like nothing matters enough for you to do anything. You just kind of have this, this kind of general apathy, and you're just kind of floating along from dull pleasure to dull pleasure. We're not made for that. It's very dangerous because sometimes we slip into that, and we don't even realize that we have this kind of subterranean addiction cycle to, like, laziness and sloth. Uh, Dorothy Sayers, she has this quote on sloth. She says, Sloth is the sin that believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, loves nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and remains alive only because there's nothing it would die for. That's not what we're made for, right? Um... That's not, nor is that really what you want. And the school of God's grace, which is Christ himself, can rescue you because you're made to participate in divine realities for communion with him and co-labor in his work. And it's a noble and good calling and it was bought with a price for you. And you might say, man, this is overwhelming. I don't think there's hope for me. Well, that's absolutely false. That's bad doctrine. Um, And a lot of this is probably simpler than I've made it sound by, you know, multiplying word after word after word. Um, you remember when Jesus encounters that, that guy? Um, like the, he's got about a million demons in him. You know what I'm talking about? Like the legion, right? legion, he's got like hundreds and... I mean, there's a picture of someone with no hope, right? I mean, he's raving mad. He's afflicted in every way. He's abandoned by his people. He's all alone, chained up, and he's self-harming. Uh, but when the grace of God appears, when Christ comes around the corner and he beholds him, that whole legion of dark forces that was in him, what happens? It's sent to flight, Right? It's immediately gone. I mean, cannot Christ do the same for us? Cannot he perform a mass exorcism of false beliefs and bad emotional habits that we have? Certainly. And you might say, well, yeah, I'm in for that, but that's not fair. His was all at once. (laughs) You know, his just happened, and it never seems to work that way for me. Well, in one sense, it does work that way for you because the grace of God forgives you once and for all right then and there, immediately. If you come to him in faith, God will forgive all your sins once and for all, and will set you free to begin something. That that process of purifying, and that sometimes is different than that one-time thing, um, and you know he actually had real demons inside. The stuff I'm talking about is you know demons of your own tending. Um, most of the stuff we have is stuff that we've chose to keep and feed and tend, and that sort, the sort that we've created, it often takes more time because a lot of times we we don't want it to go. We feel like that's part of my identity, or that makes me feel good, or that makes me you know, and so we fight against that. And there's this process of us humbly learning to trust him over and over and over and let him love us unto change. And sometimes the process of extra, the process of day after day messing up and saying, Lord, please help me, Lord, please help me, and learning to depend on him for it, sometimes that process is the very means of extricating. That process is the very means of getting us to be strong. And so that's somehow how he's, he's answering your prayer daily as you call to him and strengthen that part. Uh, and so there is no one beyond hope. Um, and he's gentle and he's kind, and if you go to him, you'll find that to be true, and he absolutely loves you. And so often we have the source of living waters right there, and yet it lays neglected, and we're sitting here kind of like, ah, I'm so thirsty. You know, we complain of thirst, and the source of living waters right before us. And so um, let me close with a, a very familiar passage of scripture. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord, I pray in in all the the midst of word after word after word that your truth is heard. Uh, Your truth is good, Lord, and we thank you so much that out of love uh, you came down and suffered for us. You entered our suffering uh, to show us your love for us and then to show us the way of love. And so we just ask for help, Lord. We ask for humility and help and that you'd help us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to allow your grace to train us for doing good in this world. We thank you so much for the cross and we know that it needs to remain at the center, Lord. To help us increase our affections for Christ, Lord. We ask this in your name. Amen.